fun fact. Chris never knows what we're talking about. <laughs> Second fun fact. The French find the name Peter very funny because it is written like the word pété, which in French means to fart. So it's literally as if there were a French name that was spelled fart <laughs> in English. This is the beginning of... The end. <laughs> Beginning of We'll Always Have Paris 2023. Like, I mean, <laughs> welcome back, bitches. Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris. I'm Rachel Kapelki Dale. I'm Nafkoti Tambarat. And I'm Chris Newmans. We're thrilled that you're joining us for season two of the pod. Today, we're going back in time to the oldest Parisian love story on the books. But before that, we thought we'd give you a little context with This Week in Love. So for This Week in Love, I want to talk about the idea of professors as sexy figures in culture, particularly male professors, um, because I have begun my new job teaching, which, of course, is a male professor. (laughs) And I would like to know whether, uh, you know, it ups my sexiness and if so, how much? I would say, yeah, like 15 out of 10. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We know that Chris is obsessed with Indiana Jones. I mean, I was going to bring that up myself, (laughs) Um, but uh, Rachel's got there before me. So um. he has I love you written on his eyelids right now. (laughs) I'm also looking in the mirror. But I'm thinking this a lot of writers from the 1970s and 1980s were men who are working as professors in newly developed MFA programs. Mm. And a lot of the protagonists of their novels were also professors. Have I solved this mystery (laughs) (laughs) of the sexy professor type? Point A, point B, conclusion. (laughs) I think that was almost a geometrical proof. Does this even need to be a This Week in Love? This is by far the most academic topic we've ever done. Well, you said geometric proof. I almost passed it. She is a professor, you know. I, but I really was like, I, this might be above my pay grade. I don't know. <laughs> I could barely do them when I had to do a proof. <laughs> so I, I, I mean, but I, I don't know about this. Are, say, are professors really sexy? That's the question. Like, Yeah, they are. Like, if, if that phenomenon of having a well-spoken professor who comes in a little bit late, they're a little bit tousled, their suitcase is kind of awry, and they come in and they go, okay, we're going to talk about the 16th century, but not like you did before. Okay, A, what professor brings a suitcase to class? Where are you going to school? So I might be bringing in a lot of like movie representations of professors I've seen. Yeah. (laughs) In fact, that might be all I'm talking about. So what I mean is, Professors as a pop culture commodity, very sexy. Yes, but is this like the Lolitaization of professors? Mm, I don't know what I meant by that. I don't really know what you mean by that either. <laughs> as in, like, uh, 11-year-old girls are not sexy. Uh, <laughs> Montcalm writes this book being like, here's, here's the mind of a pedophile, and everyone's like, 11-year-old girls are sexy. Let's make this a pop culture thing. Also, I cannot let pass... The way that you delivered unpack it was it was it was a plea it was a prayer it was a hope well welcome to my students tuesday and friday afternoons <laughs> unpack <laughs> and it was said so gently uh point b was have you ever had a professor that you actually were attracted to yes really me no I've had one who was known for sleeping with his students who never came on to me, and I didn't want to sleep with him, but I was hurt. I understand. <laughs> At that point, 
it's offensive, right? At that point, of course yeah. I'm going to say no. Of course my Because all, all of my other professors were like, watch out for him. And I was like, I've been watching out for him. And there's no danger here. I thought you were going to say all of the professors fucking me right, left, and center. <laughs> dude. Just no, nothing. No, I did have a crush on a professor who was not attractive, honestly, not physically attractive, but I thought, story of my life, I thought he was so smart. And he had such smart things to say about books. And I thought he was just hilarious and brilliant. And it was that thing where I was young enough to think that the stuff that was actually deeply problematic about what he said mm. was just going against the grain, right? Like, finally, here I am at this institution. Mm -hmm. He's opening my mind. Uh, never mind being in love with me, though. He didn't like me. Oh. <laughs> Do you think this was part of your crush? Yeah, I think so. Of course it was. Of course it was. Because I feel like the professor crush is already about power dynamics, you know, and then when you throw in like the, you know, need to be liked and like exactly. this question that is just like pervasive for women. Because yeah. inherent to also the need or the feeling that you need to be liked is also when you make that person laugh, right, when you make that person do mm. a thing that makes you think they might like you, it's such a high, right? It's such a victory. But I wonder if it goes the opposite way because there aren't, like, there isn't the same script with gender reversals. I haven't seen any same sex. I, I'm sure they exist. Right. They're just not on my radar in terms of uh, popular stories. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, like in pop culture, I do think it's still, which is interesting, right? That it's pretty, I, I don't know what you think, Chris, but like to me, when I think about like kind of, the, the fantasy of, like, professor and student, it is really heteronormative. I don't know. I'm trying to formulate something which I, I feel I'd be sort of walking a little bit of a tightrope here. But the, obviously, you know, you, you already specified it's uh, the attitude towards male professors. I feel that the fantasy doesn't necessarily go even in the other direction. Ooh. Like, it, it's not a tr Maybe there's a power dynamic, but in terms... Not but the power dynamic is, is is more literally to do with power as opposed to it would be about being attracted to someone's mind traditionally. It's that idea just in a story sense of a guy going to a university and being so overwhelmed by the intelligence of a, a woman professor. Um, it's not a typical narrative, is it? <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. Um, and so I think that the the attraction, though, it, it it's also interesting as to how much what we consider our kind of like sexual attraction and our sexual fantasies is based on stories that we've already heard, perhaps. Or if you listen to Freud uh, staring at our mother's feet when we're too young to look oh, higher, you, you know how you develop a foot fetish, yeah. Absolutely. yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, did I make that up? I, I did not. <laughs> caveat, I did not read Freud carefully. <laughs> I forget, I, Rachel, I think you might have given already yet, but uh, Chris, have you read either of you My Education by Susan Choi? No. So I I don't want to spoil it in the sense that it's – I don't think it's – once you know the end, it's not going to be good. I, I love her writing. Spoiler, I guess, for that. But that really does take this trope of – Older male professor, younger female student, you think it's going in the direction that you think it's going to go. Mm -hmm. And then ugh, kind of like a wrench in the works is brought in by the professor's wife. And then I'll leave it there because I don't want to give away too much of the plot. But, it, but I'm realizing now as we talk that one of the reasons why that story for me really hits and has such an impact is that I didn't think about how I went and kind of going like, okay, Susan, I know exactly. And I was like, oh, Susan. 
Or eating chicken in the door, you know? Because I feel like that's the reason that I've put off reading it for so long. Like, I've borrowed it from a friend, like, literally almost a year ago. And haven't read it for exactly that reason. No, it really – well, I'm curious what you think when you read it. But to me, I think it really does take – it doesn't reduce, like, the pulpy elements of having, you know, the usual, like, male-female dynamic. It really – it goes all in. It's it's really soap operatic. And we've all learned that I will never turn down anything that's, (laughs) like, like, too dramatic, et cetera. I had actually a conversation about Milan Rouge a few weeks ago. <laughs> oh, we, yeah, you can't stop. <laughs> and we both agreed. <laughs> I was so pleased. <laughs> but, you know, Susan Choi does that as well in Trust Exercise, in which, again, not to spoil it, but it begins, like, it's three iterations on the same story, uh, three moments of that story with, like, key things changed about mm-hmm. it. And one of those iterations is a relationship between, like, a sexy teacher and a student. Yeah. And it's 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 playing with our levels of trust in the storyteller and disgust and norms and all of that. Basically, Susan Choi, (laughs) welcome on the pod anytime. (laughs) I think it's also and this is this might need to be cut, but (laughs) but but it reminds me a lot of Dangerous Liaison, which we'll talk about, of course, later. Um, The question of consent and how consent can be twisted to be almost part of the game, mm. right? So I think that sometimes when we think about a fantasy like a teacher with more power than the student by necessity, by employment reasons, et cetera, one of the things that makes it sexy and fun is that consent becomes a really thorny issue, right? It's mm-hmm. no longer the two of us are on the same playing field. We're both students, we're both teachers, whatever. There's an element of like, you could take this from me. Right. And I think a lot of writers and a lot of like filmmakers play with that, right? Play with like, what's the thrill of that kind of danger? And when does that thrill turn into mm-hmm. a danger that is just repulsive and disgusting, right? And that's a very recent trope, though. I, th- I mean, I, the the writers from the 70s and 80s that I'm talking about are, are basically like, how long can you fuck a girl until you get sick of her? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's, but now that they've seen that Dangerous Liaison is kind of ahead of its time in mm. that way because that came out in 1782 <laughs> and it's right the 80s the 1780s <laughs> oh sorry everybody when i talk about the 80s you don't know the first two digits are i'm not like these basic hoes you know what i mean <laughs> i could be talking about any century <laughs> professor t is back <laughs> professor t and the women professor t bringing the tea <laughs> just to spill it <laughs> Like, so much of Dangerous Liaison is people playing with the word consent, Mm. like, literally the wordplay of it. Um, And it's really fucked up, right? But it's, but I was, in rereading it, it just made me think, yeah, we've, we've continued with this, right? Like, one of the most problematic areas of porn has been, at least the porn that I've watched, has been, like, rape fantasies, right? Like, Mm. how do you deal with that responsibly, but in a way that also responds to how people might have those fantasies, and that's just desire, right? Like, how do you, Mm -hmm. how do you kind of corral off desire how do you make it acceptable to everybody you really can't right like desire mm-hmm. always exists in this in this area that's esoteric that's again dangerous i i don't know like i i think also there's that with any sort of differential empowered idea absolutely um so i i think there's a lot of really interesting things that you're saying there which hopefully we can kind of actually get to when we talk about dangerous liaisons as well because i think there's so much to unpack with that but back on the the professor topic i mean one of the things is and i always found is like when I was at university, like how smart my professors seemed. Um, like I, w- I just couldn't believe that they had read so much and that there was almost nothing that they didn't know or whatever. And um, and that's obviously pretty appealing when you're, 
you're in university and you're being welcomed into this world of knowledge and all that kind of stuff. And then you have somebody who just has all of the answers and it's, it's like a, it's a little bit of a trick, not dissimilar. I felt to when I was a tour guide here in Paris <laughs> um, and the tour guide is the sort of the lowest rung of the professor fantasy. <laughs> But I have I, I have told you that story about um, when I was a tour guide and and as I say like you're like the professor and I I went on, I, I used to be a Segway tour guide just to be clear like the sexy less less like, a, less like a professor <laughs> getting less like a professor with everyone who was uh, dr- driving you know around Paris on on the Segway and it just so happened that there was this tour where there were like and they were quite small tours. Uh, it was these two like young American women and two young American guys, which was very rare, actually. Usually people were a lot older because you had to pay a load of money to go on a Segway tour. But anyway, and I was going around, and obviously you're the tour guide. You look like you, you know so much about not just the history of Paris, but about Paris itself. And like any question that comes to you, you, you can just field it really, really well. And like, and by the end of the tour, like I, you know, the, the two women, like they'd laughed at some of my jokes, they'd ask questions and I'd sort of seemed very knowledgeable, whatever. Uh, and then they'd gone and then the two young American guys were there. And one of them came up to me and he was like, man, you just must be like mopping the pussy up with a mop on this job. The verb mop. <laughs> Mopping the pussy up with a mop, I think, was my favorite. <laughs> oh my God. It wasn't just mopping the pussy up. It was I was doing it with a mop. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I was like, surprisingly, no. Like, actually, Segway tour guiding most of the time. It's not a, uh, <laughs> it's not really a sexy profession. But what I would say... And I did find a number of times when I was on these tours as well that I would get like, and I think it was more actually from the like the guys' perspective who had their partners there because you're there being you know you've got a fucking script like you know all of these things about the city and you know what you're gonna say, and I you know I used to see these guys kind of like getting like really antsy and uh, angry that like I knew all this stuff and they felt that they ought to also know some stuff about Paris <laughs> and so they would just say, th- say things about cars <laughs> or the Roman Empire but I wonder I, I'm I wonder if there's a gender divide here because I was a tour guide for a year and I got nothing <laughs> like I got no admiration I got no like I I felt no sense of oh my attractive uh, my attractive Attractiveness, my attractability, whatever. Attractiveness. Has, thank you. I was like, what is this word? Uh, my attractiveness is like really. My attractivation. My attractivation. <laughs> thank you. I'm really attractivating people. It never went up. Like, I just, I really felt like, yeah, they, I was there. I was fulfilling a job for them. I was helpful. And that was it. Like, I never felt that there was any sort, like, I never felt the the sense of like, oh, I know something more than them in the way that I have sometimes when I'm a professor or a teacher. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> I think to wrap this up. <laughs> I was- Fair enough. <laughs> Um, no, <laughs> but it's that I wonder also if part. This is an open question. I don't have an answer for it, but is part of the you know the perennial attraction of the teacher student thing slash tour guide slash tour guide <laughs> the fact that Chris you can, wishes you can, <laughs> you can attain knowledge. So when you're with someone who's much hotter than you, it's always going to remain the same power differential, right? They're always presumably going to be much hotter than you are. But with a teacher and a student, the idea is I think maybe that you could become the teacher one day. Like there's literally a phrase that says that, right? But mm-hmm. you can actually get to that level. And so maybe that's also part of the the charm and the the 
the drive of it almost, right? Like I could get to that point in a way that other power differences, you can't do that. It's a, Mm. you don't have wealth, you know, like you could get wealth one day, but it's not the same thing as I'm in college. After four years, I probably will be a lot smarter or at least a lot more knowledgeable, more well-read. Open question. I don't know. And that was This Week in Love. And now it's time for the love story. Okay, guys, what do you know about the 12th century? <laughs> Troubadour comes to mind. Mm-hmm. No air conditioning. Oh, well, that is definitely true. It's, uh, I mean, that's true. Irrefutable. <laughs> 21st century Paris. I feel like the 12th century is simultaneously a time of lots of things are being created and a lot of things are being destroyed at the same time. So it's a it's a period of of great edification and great turbulence and destruction. Nafkote has shown us how she got into Yale, which is by saying nothing. That sounds very smart. <laughs> um, it's after the Norman Conquest. There are medieval buildings happening. Yeah, it's definitely very medieval. Me- medieval very is medieval. happening. Yeah. Um, there are tapestries of unicorns. And an abbey at the Clooney site. Do you want me to keep going? No, this is this is this is all good. I mean, what I was we call it pre-Shakespearean. How permissive do you imagine the 12th century to be? Like, do you think it's a kind of like a a liberal age or quite a kind of like um, for whom? Age? Just like, in general. Okay. Are they, was it not part of once what they once called the Dark Ages? Uh, we're coming out of the <clears throat> sorry. We're coming out of the dark ages. Okay, so I'm thinking everybody's still so obsessed with just survival mm-hmm. that maybe they don't have time to be as judgy. Is it like right after lockdown, where we were still like a little bit scared, but also like a little bit horny, and we just kind of we didn't really know what to do, right? We'd have like one day of total abandon, the other day we'd be testing ourselves. I think that's like that. I think that's a great great description of the 12th century. Thank you. <laughs> so. I, I I think that the best way to jump into telling the story about Abelard and Heloise is just to start talking about them as people, and then we'll just build the love story from there. So, um, Peter Abelard. Yeah, also, what? <laughs> like, what business? Shouldn't his name be like a Ignatius or, you know, Ethelard or... Ethelard Abelard is a, is a heavy burden. That's true. That's too much. I mean, this isn't in my notes, but I do remember reading it that I think his name was originally Pierre Le Palais, and uh, Abelard is a pseudonym which he came up with later. Um, oh. He, I, I, and it, it's discussed as to what Abelard means. Um, I think it's some reference to something in the Bible. I can't remember because I didn't note it down because I didn't think we'd be talking about this. <laughs> fun fact. Chris never knows what we're talking about. <laughs> Second fun fact. The French find the name Peter very funny because it is written like the word pété, which in French means to fart. So it's literally as if there were a French name that was spelled fart <laughs> in English. This is the beginning of... The end. The beginning of We'll Always Have Paris 2023. Welcome back, bitches. It's like Tristram Shandy. Like, I mean, we're not actually going to get to the beginning of it. So, um, Peter Abelard, which wasn't his actual name back then. He was Pierre Le Palais, which he changed, uh, was born. Oh, no. (laughs) In 1079 uh, in a village near Nantes. Uh, which was in Brittany at the time. 
Uh, he was the eldest son of a, a noble French family. Um, a good position to be in, I hear. Uh, well, you would think. Um, but, he, you know, I mean, his father was a knight. Um, and he was expected to also become a knight and, um, and, and, you know, do all the fighting that being a knight involves. Uh, and actually his brother went off to go and fight in the crusades, but, uh, Pierre Abelard or Peter Abelard, as I will be calling him, or just Abelard. Part Abelard. <laughs> yeah, part, yeah, part, right. part Abelard. <laughs> no, that's not it. Uh, uh, no, that is it. Part <laughs> This is the high level of discourse. <laughs> so, uh, Peter Abelard, instead of becoming a uh, a knight, like he was, ex- it was expected of him. He was an extremely intelligent kid, and he decided that he was going to go into academia as <laughs> um, any extremely intelligent kid would do. Um, I don't want to die, but I want a little bit of prestige. <laughs> academia. I don't want to die, but I want to feel like I'm dying all the time. <laughs> What should I do? Get my PhD. <laughs> Did I tell you mine cost two hundred thousand dollars? <laughs> We're back. I think you'll find that his cost him a little bit more than that. <laughs> his virtue and his honor. <laughs> Effectively. Um, uh, excuse me. His virtue and his honor. <laughs> <laughs> We're a bilingual podcast. <laughs> but Abelard is—he's, you know—he he goes off uh, to learn. You know, philosophy from various teachers around France, and he's going off kind of like learning the philosophy, and he's also teaching at the same time that he's learning, and he's already he's he's gaining this kind of great reput- reputation for himself. He's genuinely like super super smart. Um, around the year eleven hundred, he uh, arrives in Paris, where he enrolls in the Cathedral School of Notre Dame de Paris. Uh, and this was before there was actually a cathedral there at Notre Dame de Barry, but it's on the Ile de la Cité. <laughs> but they were aspirational, and they were like, one day we will have a cathedral. There was probably some kind of church there, I imagine. Like, I mean, it wasn't. But they dreamed a big dream, and they said it could become a cathedral, mm-hmm. yeah. which is lovely. And so he arrives in uh, in Paris to the, like, the, the school in Paris. So this is in an era before the concept of the university. But there are a lot of like different schools which tend to be attached to cathedrals or like uh, you know churches around France, and this is obviously one of the main ones. It's in Paris, the Notre Dame de Paris school, where Abelard, this already preternaturally bright young guy, enrolls at the school under a master at the school called William uh, de Champeau. I'm already annoyed with him. <laughs> what, how preternaturally bright. Yeah. I'm, I'm competitive. I mean, that's great because actually a big theme of Abelard's life is how annoyed people are about how bright he is. I'm getting big Leo energy from him. <laughs> it, it's great because that's, that's, literally, that's literally the story of his life. So um, <laughs> Peter Abelard, uh, annoying people. Fartelard. <laughs> Oh, look, it's Fartelard coming down the hall. Everyone, we would have been his bullies. <laughs> so he, he, he's being taught by this guy at this kind of like very prestigious school, William de Champeau. And yeah, sure enough, William de Champeau soon falls out with Abelard um, because Abelard is like extremely good at rhetoric and he proves himself able to beat the person who he's 
being taught by in any yeah. argument that comes up. I'm sorry, extremely good at rhetoric is a red flag in my book. <laughs> Whereas I'm like, I think I'm in love. That is that is a left swipe for me. No. <laughs> that's that's me begrudgingly going, all right, let's see. Let's see what you're made of rhetorically. Now, do, do you want to hear what uh, Abelard and William were uh, debating? Yes. Like, mainly? 100%. Yeah. I mean, awesome. despite myself. <laughs> I mean, I'm fully in. I have to know. I don't think it's going to be that exciting for you. They were mainly um, <laughs> debating about um, philosophical realism. Ugh, I can't believe it. I really that. wanted it to be a transfigura- transfiguration. I really wanted it to be Harry Potter. No, I really wanted it to be transubstantiation, um, which, which is a great debate topic. You said philosophical... Re- philosophical realism, which is um, the idea that things exist in the absence of any mind perceiving them. They were literally debating a tree falls in the forest. Yeah. That, that, yeah. That, that, that's literally what they were talking about. Yeah. Can you imagine like falling out with somebody over that? I would be in love with Fartalar. I actually can imagine the, you don't know what side he took. Um, but just the fact that he's getting embroiled in classroom conversations about philosophical realism, I'd be the person in the class going like, I was going to say kill me, but no, kill him. <laughs> but basically this is a great, it, it, it's a great reference. Like Abelard's like, if a tree falls in a forest with no one to hear it, then it doesn't make a sound. Whereas the other guy was like, yeah, it does make a sound. Um, Great combo, dude. Thanks. <laughs> Glad we spent an hour on that. They have spent hours on it. They, they had huge public debates about it, which Abelard always won. It's really interesting how without television, we really do fall to shit as a culture and as a civilization. We just don't know what the fuck to do with ourselves. We we are at loose ends. <laughs> Let's go watch that annoying, precocious boy humiliate his professor. I'd rather do something else. Rhetoric. Like what? You're right. There's literally nothing else to do except get married. And we're too young for that. So here we go. Village Square it is. <laughs> hey, no such thing as too young for that in the Middle Ages. <laughs> what did I say? Upsetting, but more, true. More like too old. Yeah. Also, Abelard was not interested in getting married at this stage like he was he was all about like proving that a tree falling in the forest doesn't make a sound when no one's around to hear it like i mean that was his whole my philosophy king shall i make him play him (laughs) and would you believe it but william de champeau accused abelard of being arrogant (laughs) (laughs) and he was like this guy like (laughs) you know i don't like him and that as i said before basically the story of abelard's life Uh um Abelard was kind of arrogant. He later goes on to describe himself as himself. He describes himself as the greatest philosopher in Europe. Big Gertrude Stein energy. (laughs) And so this is the moment in the story where we're going to enter uh, with uh, Heloise. Um, It's a good uh, parallel. Not because she described herself as this, but because she... At the age of sort of like 18, 20, she had a reputation, not what she was calling herself as, but a reputation as the smartest woman in Europe. My God, that happened to me. I love her. (laughs) Why am I not annoyed by her? Don't look too hard. (laughs) Now, Eloise, um, no one knows that much about her family or where she actually came from. Um, Hence, just to point out why we're referring to her by her first name and Abelard by his last name. We know that she's first known about as uh, being taught in a 
convent, uh, convent, in a <laughs> first being. Now everybody hates you. <laughs> first, How you say uh, convent? I don't remember the English term. <laughs> Where's that place that women go and they never come back? Uh, what's it called? She's first talked about us coming from a convent um, in Argenté. Um, which is just outside of Paris, uh, where she had a reputation for being an amazing scholar in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. So she was already already an amazing linguist, has this reputation as being, as I say, like the smartest woman in Europe. So she arrives in Paris as uh, a young woman. Um, there's a lot of debate around how old she was mm -hmm. at this stage like originally people thought she was sort of uh, maybe sort of 16 to 18 and then, then Abelard's like she was 18 I saw her driver's license <laughs> she was definitely 18 <laughs> as I understand it the main belief is that she was in her kind of like mid to like late 20s when she's arrived in Paris uh, she arrives there, but or if still... she's like me, she's in her mid to late thirties <laughs> and lying. <laughs> no matter how old she is, she still has a uh, a ward who is looking after her and making sure that. Um... No, she is a ward. She is a ward. Oh, sorry, she is. Sorry, yes, sorry. So she has a guardian, um, uh, who's her uncle, uh, who's actually the canon of Notre Dame. Uh, his name is Fulbert. Um, These names are amazing. Hmm. Like F-U-L? F-U-L, yeah. F-U-L. Fulbert. I've never even read that before. Hmm. Um, I just have the sense I want to get him to get murdered by Vikings. So effectively, we've, we've got Abelard's in Paris. We've got Heloise in Paris. Uh, it's and both connected to Notre Dame. It's a it both connected to Notre Dame. It's a crazy time. It's the twelfth century. <laughs> <laughs> Forget about it, Jake. It's the twelfth century. <laughs> so most of what we know about their relationship comes from the letters that the two of them sent to one another, which we'll get into in a little bit. Um, and also, well, the first of those letters is actually a piece of writing by Abelard called uh, the Historia Camelotateum. Um, so the calamitous story, basically. Okay. Subtitle, uh, the smartest man in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> the smartest man means the smartest woman. What's going to happen? So this was a... Uh, this was part of a letter, the Historia, the calamitous story, um, was... Uh, a letter that he sent to an unknown recipient after the affair had happened, about 10 years after the affair had happened. And it's a piece of autobiographical writing, which was almost unknown in the 12th century. Um, in which, and, and so in this piece of writing, Abelard just outlines all of the, uh, the terrible things that have happened to him in his life, which is a lot because he was so smart. Um, sounds so fun. He sounds like uh, he sounds like the guy you get trapped at a party with. <laughs> but I want to know more about he had a terrible life because he was so smart. Dot dot dot. Like what happened? Was it just that he was so smart that he was annoying and people didn't like him? That's that. Those are the terrible things. Effectively, there were a lot of. I, I'll get into it in a moment. Oh, but yeah, like he he basically sort of. Um, this is we, we've jumped ten years into the future when he's written his like autobiography oh, about the all of the terrible things that have oh, happened right. to him, post. most of which are bad because he was just too smart for all of the people who are around him, and they just couldn't handle it. That's everything I write all the time. That's it. Um, and the beginning of the calamitous story uh, is about his affair with Heloise. 
Um, so he says that uh, him and Heloise met <clears throat> when he was, uh, and I'm quoting, puffed up by success. Uh, and he continues that worldly security weakens the spirit's resolution and easily destroys it through carnal temptations. I began to think of myself the only philosopher in the world with nothing to fear from anyone. And so I yielded to the lusts of the flesh. You know how when you win in debate and you just get super horny? <laughs> I think we can all relate. <laughs> but it is true, though. He's like, at this at this point in his life, he's in Paris. He's already bested William de Champeau um, uh-huh. over the philosophical realism stuff. I mean, it, and it's not just that. He's sort of taking on the Catholic Church when he's uh, arguing philosophical realism. They were like, trees make a noise regardless. That's always been the Catholic Church's stance. God is always watching. It makes sense. It follows. In a world of TV, it seems hard to believe. But, like, this made him pretty fucking rock and roll. (laughs) Um, That he had this old tree in the forest thing. But, like, you know, and and loads of people were like, Abelard, like, you're amazing. Like, (laughs) you're so sexy for taking on the Catholic Church. And (laughs) they were were throwing their, like, Mormon-esque undergarments at him. Um, he's also, he's, he's also a virgin. So, I mean, like, you know, he's, he's now kind of like in his like early Uh thirties, you know, everybody like, like, you know, everybody loves him. Everybody's telling him how great he is, but he he hasn't had sex with anyone at this stage. And, you know, being a virgin, it's probably not that rock and roll. It depends. I I feel like, I mean, 12th century rock and roll, I am unfamiliar. Um. (laughs) No, but I feel like you can make it rock and roll, right? Like, once you've proven that trees making noise is a whole thing, (laughs) after that, sky's the fucking limit, you know? I know that trees don't make noise, but I mean, anyway, (laughs) let's let's not get into a debate about that now, Nath. That's where we were next in a public square together, and we can really take our sides. You guys, wait till we're bored. (laughs) Wait till there's no more TV. So, yeah, in his words, anyway, he says that he's um, basically, you know, in his story, he says that he's on the lookout for a girlfriend because he's yielding to the lusts of the flesh. I'm just imagining him walking around what I'm assuming is an all-boys school, just being like, I want to fuck something. I want to fuck something. It's <laughs> like being found like humping walls. And they're like, Avalard, Avalard, we know you're the rock star. <laughs> you got <laughs> gotta stop those lustful thoughts so he meets Heloise uh, when he's on uh, according to him he meets Heloise when he's looking for someone um, and he's he, what, like he's literally just walking around looking for a woman well I mean not literally walking around like I mean like he's be serious that's not <laughs> yeah that would be ridiculous <laughs> Rachel please focus <laughs> His, the idiom that he is in is that he is on the lookout for a woman. Okay, he's metaphorically on the lookout. And he's, he goes, aha, I see one. Well, he, yeah, exactly. He meets Eloise, uh, Heloise and he says, um, uh, in her looks, she did not rank the lowest, while in the extent of her learning, she stood supreme. <laughs> so imagine someone being like, you're very intellectually brilliant and you're not ugly. Like that really, that's basically what he's getting at. A- Abelard is just not winning any fans uh, here in the 21st century. <laughs> like, Heloise, I get it. You're with your fucking religious, like, religioso uncle, you know, being chaperoned around. And you're like, I'm alone with a man. Great. Wait. So the thing is, though, to be clear, like, Heloise, on the other hand, 
in her letters, which come after the calamitous story which she's sending to him, she actually describes herself as the person who was doing the seducing. Um, oh, interesting. So I- but wait, so in his letters, though, does he not make it seem like she's seducing him? It's more like he's he's the one who's searching. Yeah. yeah. They, and he's the one kind of be like, oh, you're pretty smart, but and not too bad to look at. And she's like, I fucked him. Like, I'm the one who's started. I mean, those don't seem incongruous to me because he's like, I'd fuck anything. And she was like, I tried to fuck him. Right. Like, yeah. that, that really adds up. Like, <laughs> I mean, this is a great piece of literary criticism. I mean, they're probably both true. I mean, like, I've read loads of stuff about, well, like, in his calamitous story he's really just sort of trying it's it's a form of confession he's trying to kind of like put all of the blame on himself and then in the letters that she writes latterly she's there trying to kind of prove that the relationship really meant something and that it was her who was you know as involved in it as he was meanwhile Um, he's like dude i was about to fuck a sheep you don't even know But actually, possibly, it really did come from from both days. She says that she she saw Abelard out among the thousands of men in Notre Dame, and she chose him deliberately to be her lover. (laughs) Whatever the case was, they they did meet one another, uh, and he ends up becoming her private tutor. Um, (laughs) Like, like really? There's no double... like oh, like literally, he was tutoring. I mean, yeah, both, he, both. But yes, he's a he's a superstar academic, and you know, she's just, he's Mick Jagger giving guitar right. lessons was, to like yeah, some chick. It was, just, it was just the chain of events made me think. Oh right. Oh, but then you seemed very. And I was okay. I got. It's it. also just say private tutor to me in a British accent. <laughs> I'm not. I'm definitely going to think dirty I'm thoughts. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is that like this is from a long time ago. We don't have that much about it. So I mean, all I've really got is he became her private tutor. Okay, so you don't have like you know references, things like that. Like the CV he applied with. I see. Yeah. Okay, um, I need photographic proof. He went through. Uh, he organized it through. Uh, Heloise's uncle, the uh, famously named Fulbert. It's a real win for Abelard uh, because he's he becomes the private tutor of Heloise and uh, he also gets uh, free lodgings in the Fulbert's household in Paris. Um, and here's the quote. Need I say more, says Abelard. <laughs> we were united first under one roof, then in heart. And so, with our lessons as a pretext, we abandoned ourselves entirely to love. Her studies allowed us to withdraw in private, and then, with our books open before us, more words of love than reading passed between us, and more kissing than teaching. Why isn't there porn about this? (laughs) I'm sure there is. My hands strayed oftener to her bosom than the pages. Now I'm just imagining him doing like a honking <laughs> gesture because he doesn't know what he's about at this point. Imagining is that he's like, he pretends to keep reaching for the book and be like, "I'm so sorry, I, keep, I just it just keeps missing." And I'm oh no, he, he's doing a full on like clown squeeze. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's funny you should say that he doesn't know what he's doing. Oh. <laughs> it's funny you should say full on clown squeeze. <laughs> what the French text tells us. What he does, he goes on to say our desires left no stage of love making untried and if love could devise something new we welcomed it yes you know they're they're really like and and he actually goes on and i don't have the quote here but he goes on to talk about like how they invented 69 (laughs) basically yeah like he's like because we didn't know anything because like they're sort of older but they've never had sex before 
And he's like, because we didn't know anything about sex, like having sex was just the most amazing. That is so cool. It's like they're inventing sex. Like they have no frame of reference for this. So they're just like, what would be good? That's I'm into it. I think there should be less sex education. (laughs) I think this is we're all thinking. Let me be the first to say it. I think the you are the rhetorical master among us. I cannot. Uh, I think the more we know about it, the less fun it is. Oh, yay! <laughs> Our first polemical topic. So, uh, Abelard, he gets bored of uh, giving lectures, as he probably would at this oh, yeah. stage. Um, and he's only. Well, when you consider his alternative activities. Yeah, he's only really interested in having sex with Eloise. And getting paid to tutor her, right? Yeah. I, mean, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, I mean, he, maybe he is the smartest guy in Europe. Who knows? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> But he's still he's still like a rock star. He starts writing love songs, which are actually pretty like popular in Paris at the time. He's publishing the love songs. He's he's forgotten the kind of tree falling in the forest stuff. Uh-huh. As one does. Unfortunately, none of the love songs that he wrote at that time survive. But uh... he is Mick Jagger going to LSE and then becoming famous for writing music. <laughs> I kind of wonder if where do you go to, my lovely, might be originally penned by Elard. <laughs> Can we just sit with that for a second? That possibility now. Inevitably, uh, Heloise gets pregnant um, and her uncle is not pleased by this. I mean, he sort of, it starts coming out um, and he's like, "Ah, hold on, Abelard is not the honourable rock star um, chaste academic that I thought he was. Wait a minute, why doesn't Abelard offer to marry her? That's a great. That's a great question, Rachel. <laughs> I am the rhetorical genius of Europe. <laughs> well, so first of all, second only to Nafcote Tamarant. <laughs> first of all, Abelard moves Heloise away from Paris, away from Fulbert, uh, sends her to his sister in Brittany. Um, Sorry, hold on. Total sketch move. When you're like, oh my god, I'm I'm, I'm pregnant. I'm an unwed pregnant, like. 30-something, 20-something lady in medieval society. And he's like, it's cool. You're just going to go into hiding for a while. <laughs> I was actually going to say, there's an awful lot of this in their relationship of Abelard being, like, m- basically moving Heloise around. <laughs> he's always he's, a, he's always coming up with solutions. He's like, you're going to go there, I'm going to sort this out. You're, and then when something else happens, he's like, you go there, I'm going to sort this out. It doesn't end well for Abelard. <laughs> <laughs> so this this kind of like domineering strategy uh, doesn't doesn't end well. So um, uh, she she's in Brittany. She gives birth to uh, a baby boy, which they call Astrolab. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, it's like <laughs> which they call Compass. <laughs> Check your notes again. Are you certain? And they named him Ruler. <laughs> Astro. Astrolab. Yeah, it's a bit. It's a hippie name, but whatever. Don't like... say it like it's reasonable. As... Wait, A S T R O L A B E. Look, it it's the apple of their time. <laughs> it is. It is like calling a kid oh, Tesla or something like that. <laughs> so, I mean, if anybody's wondering what happens to Astrolab, he goes on. He becomes a a priest himself. I mean, not well, good. So we know he's it. not our ancestor. But I really <laughs> wish he he had invented the astrolab, I mean, and, <laughs> and that's what and that's where we get the name for no, it. No, it's far more. It's far more like that. Like I never want to see another fucking astrolab in my life. I am so sick of these puns. <laughs> get me to a nunnery. <laughs> 
as a point, just in case you were wondering, Astrolabe is not a name that people are giving left, right, and center in the 12th century. Oh, that is... It's very much the, oh, we overthought this name. <laughs> <laughs> Our list was Bram Stoker, Astrolabe, and, you know, <laughs> Lithograph. <laughs> Bram Stoker would have been really be on their time, right? <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah, so um, so while she's while she's away in Brittany, Abelard's like, Okay, he goes to Fulbert and he's like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna marry her. Um, like, I will marry her after mm-hmm. all." I don't believe him because I hate him. Well, Heloise is against it. Um, she, yeah, she's absolutely against the the marriage. She's like, I'm fine. Do you not know? Do you not know this about this is the kind of? I'm literally telling you that I saw their house and read what I'm now admitting is the first paragraph of the Wikipedia page. Took all this time, this Wikipedia page that's been held over my un-Wikipedia. Still more than you read. Still more than you read. You know what? <laughs> so in Heloise's letters, I mean, this is all. It's, look, I mean, this is a very complicated story to tell chronologically because a lot of the things that I'm talking about right now are written in letters which happened sort of like ten years after the events that I'm talking about actually happened. But that's what we're here for, you guys, to make this uh, (laughs) easy listening (laughs) on your morning commute. But nevertheless, like based on the letters of Heloise regarding this situation 10 years afterwards, she suggested that marriage, she didn't like the idea because she felt that it would sort of lessen the truth of their relationship effectively. Um, She was an early Princess Diana, not not promising to obey. (laughs) Yes, yeah. If, if you want to see her like that, I think. Um, <laughs> Where's our beanie baby for Heloise? <laughs> I think probably this is the most famous uh, quote from Heloise regarding their marriage. Um, if the name of wife seems holier and more impressive, to my ears the name of mistress always sounded sweeter. Or, if you're not ashamed of it, the name of concubine or whore. God is my witness. If Augustus, who ruled over the whole earth, should have thought me worthy of the honour of marriage and made me ruler of all the world forever, it would have seemed sweeter and more honourable to me to be called your whore than his empress. That's hot. It is hot. Uh, Yeah, later reprised in uh, the James Cameron film Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) I'd rather be his whore. (laughs) I'd rather be his whore than your wife. Um, I mean, I also think that in the 12th century, that is such a bold statement to make as a woman. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, absolutely. Hot take. Really... <laughs> I just, no, but I'm really struck by that. I'm like, fuck, okay. <laughs> like, we're having debates about WAP. Like, you know, we're like, I don't know if that's too much. And Heloise would be like, absolutely, my pussy was wet. <laughs> the thing is, though, is that getting married would also have been pretty bad for Abelard's career. Um, As a what at this point? Well, you know, he's he's a philosopher, he's a teacher, and, and the only way that you can really be a philosopher and teacher at that stage is by being in the church. Um, and I think at that time it doesn't really matter, but if he wants to progress, he needs to be kind of like... You know, right, you need to keep the semen and... circulating within your body instead of expelling it at regular That's moments. True, yeah. and so it's I like, have heard that about the brain. It's not like he's not... And yet, Anyway, the ch- <laughs> the chastity of priests is not like super important in the 12th century, but it's becoming more and more important. So it, it's like so anyway, not getting married to Heloise would be better for him as well. 
Um, so he really offered as a as courtesy, like really for her. It wasn't in his best. It's also to kind of appease Fulbert, who's like really not happy with their relationship. He's like, well, look, if we get married, then that will make your uncle sort of okay with the fact that I've been living under his roof and like shagging his niece. Um, but Heloise is like, nah, like, it, you know, even if you get married, even if we get married, then that's not going to appease Fulbert. He's just mad anyway. Like, because um, you're fucking annoying. <laughs> <laughs> well, she says, like, she actually says to him, if we, if we marry, we shall both be destroyed. Um, Heloise bringing in the hard truths. Yeah. yeah. But they do get married. Oh, good. Uh, in, what? They get married. Yeah. There's so many twists in the story when you when you've only read the first Wikipedia paragraph. <laughs> um, they get married, but it's in they get married in secret. So the idea is that they like uh, Abelard's career can still going on. Obviously, Fulbert knows, but like they're not going to tell anybody else. So his Abelard's career can still continue as it was. But they've kind of like legitimized the relationship. Abelard has obviously not listened to all of the kind of like beautiful things that Heloise has said. Um, <laughs> and Fulbert's like, okay, but like, don't tell anybody about Astrolab. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, though, is that about them being destroyed, Heloise was right. Um, because Fulbert, uh, he, he immediately starts like spreading the news that Abelard, this promising rock star uh, academic, has got married, which obviously ruins his reputation. And at this stage, you know, obviously, in order to get married, Heloise has moved back from the countryside to Paris, and they're both we're all living under the same roof again. And as far as I can understand it, like uh, Fulbert is being like uh, physically abusive to Heloise. Um, oh. Yeah, he's really angry. I mean, like since since the marriage, or since since, since the marriage has started, like it's oh my um, god, so Fulbert has. I mean, like started hitting her and stuff like that. Not that it, I want to. Obviously, be just as terrible if it had been going on her whole life. But there's something. I don't extra nasty about being like, oh, you've disobeyed me and thus you must be punished in this way, right? In this like really childish. For me, it's almost more of like a now you're subjugated to somebody else and thus so like, I, yeah, me. like it's before you were whatever the person I was looking after, but now you're at a different power level. Okay. I thought it was like, I'm so mad at you and now like there's a, I mean, both can be true. Exactly. Like there's a, there's an excuse. There's an outlet. Yeah. Like, I kind of get out my well, because it's like you don't want, like, I'm sure even at this time, being like the guardian of a ward who was like beating her would have been very frowned upon. But yes. like being just like the landlord to this couple is a different story. I mean, I think as a caveat, I think there are a lot of uh, debates as to what Fulbert's relationship with Heloise actually was. Like whether he was her uncle, a lot of people think he might have been her father. Other people think that he might have been in love with her. Um like so we don't really know um or it could have just been as as it is like he was he was her uncle and her ward and as you guys were saying he felt like betrayed and he you know all that kind of stuff i don't think that you know what ward means you keep using it wrong but also <laughs> oh sorry yeah, i'm using it in the wrong way around maybe he was in love with abelard it sounds to me like he was more in love with Bartelard and uh yeah Fulbert is a is kind of the dark horse of the story so far I know well I mean he's only going to get darker Bartelard <laughs> um so the thing is is that he then uh, sorry Abelard to protect Heloise in his sort of moving her around the country again he he, he sneaks her out of Paris and uh he sends her back to Argenté 
Um, Which is, by the way, not that far from Paris. It's really interesting to me that he's like, I've got to save you. Let me move you two and a half miles outside of the city limits. <laughs> but in those days, it took 40 days and 40 nights. <laughs> <That's trouble. laughs> People walked a lot slower back then. She was forced to crawl. <laughs> so he's he's snuck uh, Heloise out of the house. Okay. Uh, he's with a little bit of subterfuge and stuff like that. And put Where is Astrolab? In, I don't know where Astrolab is and all this. I'm assuming that he's with Heloise. In the stars. It seems like <laughs> nobody knows. But, um, and Abelard remains in Paris with Fulbert. And that is when uh, Abelard gets castrated. <gasps> This was in the first paragraph of the Wikipedia. Who, who, whoopst, please? Well, Fulbert uh, and his kinsmen, um, <laughs> they sneak into uh, Abla's bedchamber at night and, um, in quotation marks, cut off the parts of my body whereby I had committed the wrong of which they complained. Now... Arguably, this was legal at the time. This was <laughs> how was this legal? He married her. He, did, he well after he'd uh, you know got her pregnant with Astrolab. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a, there is some argument that it was a legal recompense, but nevertheless, um, it's not good for anyone. Not <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One person in particular. I mean, and this is all written about in his uh, his calamitous story, which I mean, as you can understand, it's Someone... it's really good. Like, I mean, it's, it's very direct about this stuff. Yeah. Um, but it, it, I don't know. That was the most indirect way of saying penis I've ever heard. <laughs> it's not his penis which yeah, has been cut. It's, it's his balls. He's been castrated like a like a you. Yeah, I've I've read quite a lot, a lot about this. Yeah. It's very specifically his balls, which were cut off. Um, but um, literally, like everybody knows about it the moment that it's happened, and apparently there's like a crowd gathered around that because he's he's famous. Like I mean, like Mick Jagger, maybe. Yeah, no, like I, honestly, imagine if somebody was like Mick Jagger's balls. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, you're at least gonna have a passing look. <laughs> So everyone's gathered around Abelard's house, um, you know, like hoping that he's going to be okay. And then he sort of has to, I mean, eventually, somehow he survives it, despite it being the 12th century. God, the pain. Everybody in Paris, where he's already like a bit of a superstar, everybody knows he's been castrated because of what he did with Heloise. Um, and I mean, you know, he's overcome by shame basically so not from anything he did but from the one thing that he didn't do <laughs> the one thing that was done to him he's like now i'm ashamed yeah that's an excellent point so there's an interesting thing which i also read about which is that apparently if you're uh castrated as an adult man um then that doesn't stop your ability to kind of like get erections, have sexual desire, stuff like that. It's only it, that's only something that happens if you're castrated as a like before you've hit puberty. Okay. Didn't know that, but nevertheless, the impact. Wait, of, but you can't consummate it. Yeah, obviously, yeah, you can't. Well, you, you yeah, I presume. I don't know if you can orgasm, but I mean, I, I haven't delved into this huge. Do you come blood like a vampire? I have no idea. Is that what vampires do? <laughs> we had a big debate about this the other night because on True Blood, they, the vampires cry with blood. And I was like, so clearly they're coming blood. 
and uh, it does make vampires a lot less sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Every time, all the towels, Jesus. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so <laughs> getting back to Heloise and Abelard. Um, now a vampire, I believe. <laughs> um, you know, basically, this is enough for him to like just call off his relationship with Heloise. He's like, that's it. It's it's done. I gotta be honest. So, I get that. <laughs> I, you know. No, because he was supposedly so in love with her brain. And now that he can't fuck her, he's like, I'm out. But he can fuck her. But someone cut off his balls in the middle of the night and all the people outside are waiting to hear about it. I'd also maybe not want to pursue a relationship with the person. I think you double down. You're gonna let public opinion... Yeah, a hundred percent. I'm gonna let public opinion. Like, I, mean, I don't know how I would react in that situation. I don't want to. Like. I'm just really thinking. I wake up in the middle of the night. My lover's uncle cleaver out. Like my balls are off, right? And it's so painful and terrible. And he's like, now all of Paris awaits you outside. And then every time you try to argue anything in the village square, all they're doing is like looking directly at your crotch going like, I wonder how they feel. I don't want to, I don't want to be in that position. That's not fair. I'm a public intellectual. They're going to be doing that anyway. And if you were really in love with her before, you're not in love with her now? No. <laughs> Honestly, not really. <laughs> it's kind. It's it, it. The very least, it's the shame of the whole thing, which kind of like drives him away. And he becomes. He goes off to become a monk in uh, the Abbey of Saint Denis, uh, and he insists that Heloise just becomes a nun. Okay, um, large. <laughs> up until now, up the whole ball incident, I was with you, but you can't force someone to become a nun. Well, you can in it. the twelfth century. She just she decides to become a nun. I mean, like maybe she wanted to anyway. I don't think she yeah, did. She, I don't think that's what happened. That is that is not the vibe she was giving. No. So, any, but anyway, the, the years go. Then, then, then we're going to get into the the letters side of things. So the years go by. Uh, the two of them they get on with their respective careers, so to speak. Abelard carries on. Ill- illustrating parts of the Bible yeah. in inexplicable way, and that's for him. For her, it's just praying. <laughs> They're not even allowed to do manuscripts. <laughs> well, no, look, Abelard, he keeps on going around being a great philosopher. He's allowed to travel? I thought he was a monk. Well, he, he, he's a monk for a little bit, and then he kind of leaves. Have you ever read him The Name of the Rose? The Name of the Rose? Like, he, he pisses people off wherever he goes. So like, even the monks are like, you know what? Do you want to take a little trip? Do you want to do a study abroad? <laughs> <laughs> you know where it would be good for you to go next? <laughs> it has been a blast. <laughs> I'm going to give a little bit of a shout out to Abelard here in that, like, he was obviously a very brave and, like, brave philosopher in the sense that he's, you like, his main thing in philosophy really is, like, he's using Greek and Roman philosophies to interrogate uh, Christian doctrines. Um, and which is seen at, at the time as using kind of like pagan philosophies to interpret, uh, like you know, Christian doctrines. Um, and he basically that like, he writes this huge book in which he basically goes through the entire Bible, kind of saying like, you know, how, it does does this work rationally? Does this work rationally? Does this work rationally? I mean, it sounds incredibly dull, but. Um... <laughs> I might have fallen asleep with my eyes open for a second. <laughs> Um, but like it's it's very important for Christian philosophy or theology going forward, and like it's the 
the kind of thinking which leads to people like Thomas Aquinas and then, you know, the opening up of Western philosophy. So he's a, like, you know, his stuff might not seem that exciting from our point of view, but like in terms of what it leads to, it's it's huge. Like, it's kind it's, of amazing that he was allowed to join a monastery now that I think about it. Like, I don't know, like, wouldn't that have been almost against the mission of the monastery or is this one of those? No, you can join. You could join a monastery at any point. Oh, then he became a monk. He did. He did become a monk. The, yeah. the thing. The thing is, is that he like the what he. I think he got exp- uh, He get ex- he gets expelled from the monastery at a certain point because he's pissed everybody off. But like yeah. they te- they expel him from the monastery. I think, and then they say like, you, but don't go and join any other monastery because like he's like he's yeah. because cannot, nobody could take you. We don't want to inflict you on the world. I cannot emphasize enough how much of a superstar he is. He's like he's super famous in this sort of like very specific. So he's almost like Keith. Richard's going around ruining hotel rooms and they're just like, don't let him book a hotel room. You know what it is? He's like a sexy Neil deGrasse Tyson. Meanwhile, Heloise is, uh, she's doing her own thing. She's rising through the ranks in her nunnery. Yes. Um, she becomes... Which I learned uh, in my Wikipedia page can also be called a monastery. But a monastery can't be called a nunnery. Monastery is like the mankind uh, oh, terms. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Did you guys fall asleep with your eyes open? If you're driving, please be careful during this episode. Something something you can tell people on dates that that's a um. <laughs> caveat I wouldn't open with it. <laughs> uh so she eventually becomes an abbess. Uh good for Heloise. Um and then sort of ten years go by and that's when uh Abelard writes this letter about this it's it's a letter about his the calamitous story is an a letter addressed to no one in particular, and it, it's, no one that we know of, or like it's just it's, an anonymous. It's hard to say whether it's addressed to whether it was actually sent to somebody, or whether actually there was never really any intended recipient for it. Uh, but the point is, is that the letter gets picked up, and it's it's very long. I mean, like it's like thirty pages. See so. all of my rants in my my little Mac Notes <laughs> app. <laughs> Um, was it sent or was it not? <laughs> uh, but it get it gets picked up and it gets like uh, published, and uh, so loads of people are reading his letter about his life, in which he goes on about the kind of like having his balls chopped off, and um, mm. and then all of the people who didn't like him about how he was accused of heresy twice. Uh, he saw his books burnt at a certain stage, which he, by the way, described as being more painful than uh, being castrated. <laughs> Yeah, we believe it. Yeah. Go off. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the the letter, the story of his calamitous life, it ends with him talking about him being in some other monastery somewhere where all of the other monks are basically bullying him. <laughs> okay, Farty McFart. Like... <laughs> now, because uh, this... this letter is disseminated quite widely. <laughs> what a choice of words. <laughs> No pun intended. <laughs> I feel like one of the monks bullying him. It's the only thing you can disseminate, hey, Abelard. Like. And Nav and I behind you as your minions just going, Port alert, port alert. <laughs> Heloise, Heloise obviously reads this because it's, uh, you know, it's it's been disseminated. <laughs> and she is a receptacle. <laughs> uh, so she reads this letter um, addressed to no one and then she realizes where he is and so she starts writing letters back and this is the the correspondence between the two of them which is 
how they've become kind of so famous in the modern age because of these letters that were exchanged between them. And though like 10 years have gone by her letters, it's very, very clear that she is still super into him. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, let's go for the, the, like one of the quotes from uh, her letters, um, which, and, and they're great. Like, I just want to say like, these are like actually what he writes to her is pretty boring but what she writes to him i think is like so exciting and you know what that tracks that tracks so hard (laughs) with me (laughs) (laughs) so she says um talking about their life together the pleasures of lovers which we shared have been too sweet they cannot displease me and can scarcely shift from my memory wherever i turn they are always there before my eyes bringing them awakened bring them awakened longings and fantasies which will not even sleep. Even during the celebrations of the Mass, when our prayers should be purer, lewd visions of those pleasures take such a hold upon my unhappy soul that my thoughts are on their wantonness instead of on the prayers. I should be groaning over the sins I have committed, but I can only sigh for what I have lost. That's great. (sighs) Yeah. I mean, they go on, there's like... Who needs Matrix? Come on. (laughs) Lauren Groff can only dream. (laughs) Talks about kind of like having (laughs) her beauty having pleased him. And uh, if that were a crime, it's a crime I am yet fond of. And I have no other regret, save that against my will, I must now be innocent. And he writes back, who this? I mean, it's kind of worse than that. Like, I mean, he, he sort of writes back like... You know, I, I, it, it, it's sad that you still feel that way. Oh, like, um, oh my yeah. God. I feel like I'm holding the bottle of wine being like, I feel like I've gotten this letter. <laughs> I'd be so upset. Upset is not the right word. Like, I'd be devastated, furious. Like, with one of your exes that you never got over and you're just like, those moments were so precious to me. And he's like, mm, I'm so sorry. Yeah, That's so sad for you. <laughs> and then imagine that you're receiving that letter while you're in a fucking nunnery. He's like, have you read this book? It's called The Bike. <laughs> Pretty good. So I am. I've highlighted the parts that I've already proven through Roman and Greek philosophy. Only he still had his balls. <laughs> what would he be thinking? That's what she should have responded. Hey, did you find your balls? Genuine. Disseminate this. <laughs> But then it's true that the letters do, uh, like, there are a few of these letters which are really her just sort of, like, you know, saying, like, you know, have me back. Why did you leave me? I still love you. And then and he he sends her a load of letters which are very, very dry in returns, explaining. (laughs) Well, they would be, wouldn't they? Um, (laughs) And eventually, eventually she's like... um, well, uh, okay, then I still want to kind of stay in contact with you. Um, just like, well, teach me how to be a better nun. And uh, oh, uh, that's that that that's a, like a friend zoning of the twelfth century. <laughs> teach me how to be a better nun. It's like, no, we can still be friends. Yeah, I ah. Oh. Yeah, and then the rest of the the rest of the letters are all. I mean, this is what I, it's a genuine. It's like a real horrible tragedy that when you read it is played out in just real time. Because, and when you read a letter, it's it's an interesting phenomenon. I think in reading because you're kind of like you're both the recipient and the you know there are two characters at play. So you're imagining yourself receiving the letter, as well as reading the thing that the person is is writing. So it's like so it it just is a like a whole literary experience i think reading the letters between them and because they are so vital and so real 
um, it's a it's a great book just to to read. Well, and it's such uh, a complicated thing because, of course, the first place my mind goes is like, well, does that mean that there is no love without sexual desire? But then it's also there's so many other social factors at play here in terms of his position, you know, and uh, her position, even you know, right. like uh, within the the church that it's like well i mean but to whose advantage is like it's to nobody's advantage to rekindle this in any way it seems incredible to me that maybe not incredible but really intriguing that she's to say to someone that you obviously as you said still in love with you know let's forget the rest just teach me how to be a better nun right like just to have that person to keep that person in your life when they start out as more than equal partners right like I think one can make a probably a valid argument that Eloise is smarter, has she's so brilliant, she has all these prospects. She's not someone who's like, oh, she's clinging on to him, you know, like kind of um the cliche about a woman like she's clinging on to him because she has nothing else in her life. Like she has a lot of other interests. Perhaps she doesn't have a lot of opportunities in the same Yeah, time. that's what I was gonna say. I'm, I'm just, not sure she has prospects. <laughs> Being a smart woman in the twelfth century sounds like hell. But imagine she's in the nunnery now, against her will. She gains nothing by staying in contact with him except her own pleasure. And I can't, I guess for me, I cannot imagine loving another human, never mind another straight man, so much that I'm like, teach me how to be this position that I'm only in because you told me I had to be in this position. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I think I think that is not, not, just fascinating, really fascinating, the depth of feeling. I mean, I think that there's there are a lot of things I mean, that, that w- which we don't have time to go into, obviously, but like. I mean, one of the things that she does talk about, like in the early days of the relationship, is how she, in terms of not getting married to him, wanted to be thought of as his friend as mm-hmm. well. I want to be friends with you. And Classic move. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you think that's also a matter of equal footing, right? Like, by mm-hmm. if we're lovers, by necessity, because we're assuming it's always going to be man and woman, I'm going to be lower than you. If we're friends, yeah, then I'm, I'm, we're equals more, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there is something wonderfully enticing and sexy about that at that time. Absolutely. The 12th century friendship is sexy. <laughs> and I, th- I think it's also worth kind of like thinking that the two of them were like, I mean, while he might seem like less radical, certainly in kind of like the in relationship terms, he was absolutely a radical for his day in terms of all the philosophy that he was putting forward. And then you can just tell that she is a radical in terms of like what it means to be a woman. Uh and there is obviously like a meeting of minds between the two of them and that desire i mean for me it's like her desire to carry on this correspondence because like i don't know how much intellectual stimulation she's getting in the nunnery where she is and she's still in correspondence with this guy who you know um is considered to be and probably was like the greatest philosopher of his age Mm -hmm. and she's probably one of she probably literally is one of the smartest people of her age and like they are communicating and yeah it might not be about sex but like it is something that they're getting out of it like it's um even though it's sad and tragic because she's not she wants more and then she realizes i mean this is my interpretation um you know thousands of scholars have speculated on this in the past <laughs> i've like like read the book and like the introduction <laughs> did you read the first paragraph of the wikipedia page though who's the real expert who's the real expert <laughs> uh, no but I, yeah i my feeling is it's it's very sad because she realizes at a certain point like well the you know talking about the sex stuff i'm not going to convince him but i still 
want this relationship in my life so let's talk about the things which i'm interested in talking about like or so that he's interested in talking about so that we can carry on having some kind of relationship sad how some things don't change and so to bring the story to a close um he uh he dies first uh in he would (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm not quite sure when he dies but he 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 dies first but uh and when he dies his bone they haven't they don't see each other again by the way after um after that you know initial separation his castration they haven't seen each other at all what? So they never see each other again. So when Abelard died, his bones were moved to uh, Heloise's monastery, uh, nunnery. By her request? And she did like a rose from his Emily type. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Once again, I don't know if it's by request or why they were moved. I think it's it, there, there's a lot of... I hope it was by request. If it wasn't, it's just like, here are the bones of your lover from 30 years ago. <laughs> Thanks. No one else wanted them. <laughs> um, <laughs> the monasteries all turned them down. <laughs> and then when she died, uh, her bones were, but her body was placed alongside of his. Um, oh. And um, they were moved around, like the, their bodies were moved around a little bit, like after that. Um, and even during the French Revolution, uh, despite all of the kind of like desecration of corpses which was going on there, they still managed to the two bodies stayed together. Uh, and then in in terms of like the tradition is that they in eighteen seventeen uh, they were moved to Pelleches Cemetery, um, where and they're still buried there today. And but they very quickly became like a pilgrimage spot for people who it's one of the original like Pelleches graves that people would make their little pilgrimage to would be the one of Abelard and Heloise and people who are either in relationships or wanted to be in relationships would come and like leave messages at their combined tomb of mm. Abelard and Heloise. So they are still together in death. Um, <laughs> and Heloise is making a gesture that won't translate well to audio medium, <laughs> but it's hands up, get me out of here. <laughs> this guy was the wrong choice to spend eternity with. I'm... And now it's time for our favorite segment, Mary Fuck Kill. Chris, we already know that Abelard is dead as fuck. <laughs> Don't worry. Forget all of the main characters from the story. Um, oh, it's our favorite kind. It's not able. I mean, maybe I should throw Astrolab in there just, just for the hell of it. No, your marry, fuck, kill for this week is um, letters, text messages, and email. Oh, my God. Okay, clearly you got to marry letters. Is any true romantic going to say otherwise? A letter that you did with your body? You you did it with your body? To tell me your thoughts in your brain? Exactly. No, I am marrying letters. I can keep them forever. Never going to divorce you. Yeah. Fuck an email. Mm-hmm. An email is like a necessary thing. It's a bodily function. that You're just like, got to get this taken care of. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, wrap up the business, whatever. Text. So, hold on. Can we go back? Up? What, what part is confusing you? <laughs> it's the bodily function. Wrap up the business. 
you know, you just want to fuck somebody. <laughs> like Abelard in the monastery being like, where, where, where is an available vagina, please? <laughs> best wishes, Rachel. <laughs> I actually always put best comma, Rachel, because back in the day, <laughs> I'm going to tell you all my secrets. <laughs> I tricked myself into thinking, okay, it's a psychological trick because they're going to see best Rachel together. Ooh. So all of my business correspondence is signed best Rachel. <laughs> But it's meant to be read without the comma. And that, yeah, text message. I can live without a text message. Fuck a text. No, don't fuck a text message. Kill a text message. <laughs> oh, I think so. Same thing. Although, wait, 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 wait. Backtrack though. I'd never hear from Chris again. <laughs> Chris will not respond to an email, he will respond to a text message. I will still take it. Chris, you're out of my life. <laughs> Imagine me as a letter correspondent. I, I can't. <laughs> you literally wouldn't. Um, so I'm going to – so same thing for me, like Mary letters, obviously, like the idea of co- like written correspondence. You have to go to the post office. You care. And and then email – so fuck emails, kill text. Quick image of Heloise going to the post yeah, office. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> um, But I think it's also that I just really love expansive forms of communication. So a text is – like, it's brief. You're just going to tell me, like, where to meet you. Whereas, like, an email, a letter, there's the prospect of more. There's the prospect of information, of gossip, of, like, oh, I just remember this thing. You're not going to do that with a text, right? Like, you don't have the time and the space for that. So, yeah, yeah no, I'm always going to go for the expansive, the indulgent form of of conversation, of communication. Also, the more self-torturing because you can't get an immediate reply, like, especially with a long email, like, both of them require some delayed gratification. Whereas a text message, you can wait for the gratification and it's delayed, but that's not what you wanted when you sent it. it. Exactly. It's like, oh, it's like uh, bad porn. (laughs) Um, I would, uh, just to maybe be a little bit different, I think I'm going to say fuck letters because they're the kind of, they're sexy and romantic, but actually I don't know if I want to live in a world where I'm just writing letters all the time because that's pretty impractical. Also, tasks weigh heavily on Chris. That is true. Tasks weigh heavily on me. Um, I guess I like that. (laughs) Tasks weigh heavily on me. (laughs) Like life weighs heavily on me. Like so, yeah. doing stuff is. Ooh, uh, getting some truth. <laughs> getting some truth from the new ones. And I just want to say, I hundred percent agree and relate. Like <laughs> I see no lies so far. Absolutely, life weighs heavy. Okay, so with with life weighing heavy on you, what are you marrying? Well, I'm going to be marrying text messages. Obviously, that's. Oh, that's yeah, of course. <laughs> oh my god! Of course, you're going to fucking marry. Oh, you're going to kill email. Yeah, I'm going to kill email. Well, with your Google skills, I understand. Not not worth it. Have you ever seen Chris reply to an email? I'm like, hi guys, here are two things I need you to do. Can you do them? And Nuff is like immediately like, look, Nuff three weeks later is like, yes, of course, is that what just arrived? Yep. And Chris just ghosts. Just Chris is into the ether. I'm not sure if I even know his real email address. It's like, uh, you know, Chris at angelfire dot, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's it. That's, uh, yeah. I was going to say, we're both pretty irritating correspondents. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I kind of don't know if I prefer my method either. You know? <laughs> 
in a way, it's more honest of Chris to be like, okay. <laughs> I know, but whenever Nav writes back, I'm like, you know what? I know this email has been weighing on her for three weeks. It has been. That's okay. Thinking about it. Constantly. Yeah. <laughs> like to the point where like she could have written back five times, 15, 50 times over. Um, this has got a lot more personal than I uh, intended. <laughs> <laughs> and we're here for it. Welcome back to We'll Always Have Paris, you guys. We're here for season two. See you next time when we're talking about something I don't even know yet. Yeah.